Love has the power to change someone's day, to lift someone's heart, to comfort someone's soul. Love is a language that everybody speaks, men and women, young and old, rich and poor. Love is the character of God, who loved us before we loved him, who loved us so we could love one another. Love is not just a feeling, it's a commitment. Not just an emotion, it's a decision. Love is about giving, not getting. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. This is the power of love. have you loved this week? Have you loved well? Have you loved well? Well, here we are at the last sermon in our short series on love, the love feast. In the first week, we learned that um, God loves us because we are valuable to him and we bring him pleasure. God wanted to create us. He didn't need to. He chose to because love demands action. Love's not a passive verb, it's an active verb. The essence of love is that it, it needs to do something. And God chose to create us, and in doing so, he called us very good. Very good because we are made in the image of God. Very good because God don't make no junk. Remember? You and I bring value and pleasure to God. And God, who is agape, love... He loves you unconditionally. Agape love, remember, is that one of the Greek words for love used in the New Testament. It's the kind of love that's for all people. It is selfless and acts only in the best interest of others. It's not earned, nor is it merited. It is given freely and willingly. It is the kind of love that God has for us. And in return, because love demands action... We are to love what and who God loves, and remember, God loves everyone. Last week, we asked, what does love look like? The answer is, it looks like God, because God is love. We read in 1 Corinthians 13, what is well known as the love chapter. We read 1 Corinthians 13, and we discovered that these verses describe the attributes of God, attributes that we are to emulate, to mirror duplicate in our lives. And I gave you three practical ways in which we could display the face of love to everyone. And that was seeing people, speaking to people, and listening to people, with a common denominator being compassion. So how did you do this past week in loving others? What if everywhere you went, people would see you speak to you and listen to you? What if people had compassion on you, learned your story and sought to meet your needs the way that you know they need to be met? It sounds really good, doesn't it? Until we realize that there's no guarantee that we will be treated the same way in return. Love is a risk. 
It may not get returned exactly how we want it to be returned, but someone has to make the first move. So this past week, how did you do at loving? How did you do at loving? Who's going to make the first move? Well, we know God did. God made the first move. He took a risk in agapeing you, loving you unconditionally. He took a risk with his compassion. He did it because you have value to him. He did it because you bring him pleasure. And he asked you to take that same risk for other people by seeing them, by speaking to them, and by listening to them, being compassionate with them, and looking to help relieve one another's burdens. That, my friends, is what love looks like. It looks exactly like God. So how did you look this past week? when you interacted with one another. And that brings us today. Why do we love? Why do we love? Let me pray. Father God, you're such a good father. I don't know what else to pray this morning other than to thank you. You're doing something here in this church. You did something on Saturday here in this church. You're doing stuff in all of our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, in the community. Some of it we see, some of it we don't see. But Lord, you're doing something because you're a good father. And for that, we say thank you. Lord, we give this over to you again. In your name we pray. Amen. Jerome, one of the early church fathers, said that when the apostle John was in his extreme old age, he was so weak that he had to be carried into the church meetings. At the end of the meeting, he would be helped to his feet to give a word of exhortation to the church. And invariably, he would repeat the same phrase over and over again each time. Here is the phrase. Little children, let us love one another. The church, Jerome said, began to grow weary of the same words every time. And they finally asked John why he always said the same thing over and over and over again. And John replied, because if this only is done, it is enough. Little children, let us love one another. So as we come to our main scriptures this morning, we may identify with those early believers John the Apostle has written a letter here that we're going to read, a portion of 1 John, it's called, whose emphasis is the importance of love. So if 1 Corinthians is the love chapter, 1 John ought to be called the second love chapter, or, or love chapter part two, the return of John. I don't know. Just when you thought it was safe to go back to church. I don't know. Maybe not. John begins the love conversation in chapter 2, verses 7 to 11. He hits it again in chapter 3, verses 11 to 18, and then yet again in chapters 4, verse 7, through to chapter 5, verse 4. John uses the word love 47 times in this very small, short letter. So we may well agree when we read it with the early disciples, why so much love? Why so much love, John? Because 
If this only is done, it is enough. John not only repeats the imperative to love one another in, in chapters 4 and 5, but he hits it longer and harder than at any point in this letter. He wants to make sure that we understand that love is not an optional virtue for the believer. It's to be the distinguishing mark of the church in the world. John goes so far as to say that if you do not love others, you do not know God. Thus, maybe we need to examine our own lives by this extreme, by the supreme standard. That if you do not love others, you do not know God. How did you love last week? It's a simple enough question. Why do we love? What is our motivation for loving the way God has loved agape style? Well, let's read 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 21. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me. I believe they'll have it on the screen as well. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 21. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for love for God is love. But this, sorry, by this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect, perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother or sister, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should also love his brother and sister also. A lot, of, a lot of love going on in that chapter. So why do we love? Why do we love? Well, 1 John 4, 7 gives us the answer. Beloved, let's love one another for love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. We love because God is love. There you go. 
Check mark. Sermon's done. We've talked about this for the last two weeks. We love because God is love. We were created in love, by love, to love. That's why we love. But that's not the whole answer. Sorry. Sermon's not over. Tricked you. Why do we love? Well, verse John chapter 1, 4, verse 19 says, We love because he first loved us. So we love because God loved us first. Long before we were around, God chose to love us first. He made the first move. For that reason alone, we ought to love as a response to what has been given to us. That's why we love, because God loved us first. But that's not the whole answer. So why do we love? 1 John 4.10, in this love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. And then earlier in 1 John 3.16, John writes, this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So we love because Jesus laid down his life for us. God found us to have such value, he gave his one and only son over to death on a cross so that we might live. We give God such pleasure that God sent his one and only son to die a horrific death on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin, to pay the debt that we owe to God so that we might be saved and live eternally with God in heaven. We may have been created in love, by love, and for love, but because of the act of one selfish man, sin entered the world and marred what God called very good. That was us. When we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart, that he was risen from the dead, Scripture tells us that we will be saved, that we will be rescued. So how does one respond to such a gift? By giving it to others. By giving to others what has been given to us. That's why we love. But that's not the whole answer. Why do we love? 1 John 4.21 says, and this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. We love because God commands it. Yes, God has ordered us to love one another. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. We are to love others full stop. No excuse. No excuse. But pastor, you don't know this person. They're terrible. Nope. No excuse. That's why we love. But that's not the whole answer. Why do we love? Why do we love? In the Gospel of John 13, 35. Oh, sorry, uh, I skipped one. Why do we love? 1 John 4, 12. If we love one another, God remains in us because he has given to us of his spirit. So we love because God remains in us when we love. So when we accept the gift of eternal life offered to us in love, God is in us, in the personage of the Holy Spirit. So we have the perfect, loving, love-offering God in us. How can we not love? 
when we are filled with the presence of love. In order not to love, you have to choose not to love. You have to, you have to quench it, push it down, because God, who is, in, who is love, resides in you. Love should be bubbling over, not cramped down and with a cork on it. When, when, he who is in, when he who is love is in us, how can we not love? That's why we love. But again, that's not the whole answer. So why do we love? Well, in John 13, 35, the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 35, we get to, we get to this verse. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So we love to prove that we are followers of Jesus. Don't miss this. Pastor Mike spoke a little bit about it earlier today. Don't, don't miss this. We love in order to prove that we are disciples of Jesus. We love in order to prove to the world that God truly exists. All of those other reasons we just ran through are part of the answer. But the full answer is we love to prove that we are a follower of Jesus, that God is who he says he is. That's why we love, and that, my brothers and sisters, is the whole answer. Did you know humans only see three base colors? Blue, yellow, and red. That, by the way, is called a segue, what I just did there. It's kind of an awkward segue. I didn't know how to transition from where I was to where I'm going, so I just did it that way. Anyways, did you know that? We only see three base colors, blue, yellow, and red. Dogs, I found out, are not colorblind. That's a myth. Dogs do see color, but they only see two base colors, blue and yellow. What does this mean? Well, they can't see a red ball in green grass. So if you really want to frustrate your dog, get a red ball and throw it into green grass and just watch them panic. Where's the ball? Where's the ball? They won't be able to find it. But they can spot a blue ball in green grass. So then you can reward them by throwing them a blue ball. For dogs, the color red doesn't exist. They can't see it. Mantis shrimps, they see 16 base colors. So they see things that do not exist for us humans because we can't see those base colors, whatever they are. 16, that's incredible. Me, how about me? I'm colorblind. So my wife has to dress me. Every morning she has to dress me because I can't see color. How can we prove something is real or true? How can someone prove to me that what I'm wearing isn't green? Right? Am I wearing green? Come on. Am I wearing green or not? See, I thought I was wearing green this morning. Shoo. I look at this, I go, oh, green shirt, green pants. That's gonna, is that going to look nice together? That, dude, that's not green. It's not green. That's my colorblindness coming in. Reasoning has its limits. 
In other words, just because you think something is true doesn't make it true. Just because I thought this was a green shirt, it doesn't make it a green shirt. I have long arguments, long arguments with my wife and my kids about the color of things. I don't know why I do it. I know I'm always wrong because I'm colorblind. But yet I persist in these arguments because I want to be right. Just because I think something is green doesn't make it green. It's very difficult to reason someone to the truth. It does happen. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying it's very difficult to reason someone to the truth. I, uh, I often, excuse me, I often ask my wife science questions because she was a science teacher. So I often ask her science questions just before we go to bed. Sometimes when she's almost asleep. And I ask her questions like, what is wind? How do you know, how do we know air is real? Why is water wet? And her answers are always solid, just like her jab that she does in my, in my chest when she's trying to get back to sleep and, and not have to answer my questions. She hits me really hard for waking her up with my stupid questions. But no matter how she explains it, scientifically, for me, her explanations come up short about proving these things. This is called the epistemological model, where you use reasoning to prove something. In the same way, we can explain to an unchurched person using scripture, history, archaeology, and other data who God is and what he has done to prove his existence. But, but they can certainly argue the facts, as many do, using their own reasoning. And that's the inherent flaw in the epistemological model. Just because we believe it to be true does not necessarily make it true. So the other way one can try and prove something is by using what is called the ontological model. This is when we use experience to prove something is real and true. Let, let me give you an example of, of, of what I mean. So when I asked my wife how we know air is real, she gently smothered me with her pillow <laughs> until I almost passed out from a lack of air, and she said, see, air is real, isn't it? She ontologically proved her point. I can't explain to you how gravity works, but I know that if I were to walk off this stage, I would crash to the ground. I can't prove to you that the earth is round, but if you were to go up into outer space, you would see for yourself that the earth certainly is a globe. It's not flat. People can't argue with experience. They can't. When it pertains to God, the fact that you were once lost but now are saved, that you are different today than when you were before you first met Jesus, that experience is the best proof text for the existence of God than any debate that you might have on Facebook. See, when I came to Christ, my life dramatically changed. When I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, when I asked him to rescue me from my life of sin, from my life of hopelessness, my behavior radically changed. When I told my parents 
what I had done, they, they, they scoffed. It's just a fad. This, this is going to wear off. Is he in a cult? But over time, as they watched me, they saw the changes in me occur. And a few years after my salvation experience, my mother said to me, I don't know what has happened to you. I don't know who did it. I don't know why it's happening to you. But I can tell that there is something radically different about you. I like to think her coming to Jesus on her deathbed had a little to do with those changes that she saw in me. Because the best way to prove something is true is through experience. So when God tells us that if we love one another is to prove to the world that we are his disciples, that he is real, wow, is that not great incentive to love? You can tell people you're a Christian. You can wear a cross around your neck. You can have the bumper sticker on your car, carry a Bible around with you. But unless you love others, unless you show compassion to others, you will never prove to the world that you are a believer and that God exists. Because remember, God is love. Likewise, if we do not love others, show compassion on them and talk about God's love, how will the world believe us? The proof, they say, is in the pudding. So why do we love? Why do we love? Lots of reasons. But the chief of them being is to prove that we are followers of God, to prove the existence of God. God who is love. I read an amazing story this week that came out of the Korean War. Uh, a young communist officer ordered the execution of a Christian civilian. And when this communist officer learned that his prisoner was actually in charge of an orphanage and was doing much good in caring for small Korean children, he decided to spare the man's life. But he was going to kill the, son's, the man's son in his place. And so the 19-year-old son was shot in the presence of his father. Later, when the tide of events changed in history, this same officer was captured by the Americans, tried, and condemned to death for war crimes. But before the sentence could be carried out, the Christian father pleaded for the life of this communist who had killed his son. He admitted that if justice were to be followed, this man should be executed. But since he was so young and blindly idealistic, he probably thought that his actions were right. Give him to me, he said, and I'll teach him about the Savior. So they granted the request. That father took the murderer of his son into his own home, and as a result of his self-sacrificing love, that communist became a Christian pastor. Not because of any mental reasoning, but because of the unconditional love that was displayed upon him. When, when Mike and, and, and Pastor Mike and, and Pastor Elijah and I, when we stand up here and preach, we're trying to convince you of what is real through the epistemological method. 
and it's not a perfect method. The Christian man in the story chose to use the ontological method, demonstrating through experience, to show the communist prisoner what is real, that God's love is real. So why do we love? We love so that everyone will know. So that everyone will know that we are a follower of Jesus. We love in order to prove God, who is love, is real. So do you need any other reason to love? Which is why our sermon series, Action Point, is so important. To demonstrate love and compassion to one another and not just talk about it. So again, I would like each of you to continue to to consider partaking in our sermon series, Action Point, hosting an agape feast, a love feast. Begin thinking and praying about who you might invite over to your home for a love feast as a way of extending love, community, and hospitality to those around you. It can be anyone, believers, the unchurched, friends, neighbors, coworkers, whoever, really. A number of you have already held these agape feasts in your home. Well done. Let's keep it going. There isn't one specific date that you need to do this on. It would be nice to have them held over the next few months leading up to Easter. And to help make it easier, we offer this again. Sherry and I will provide you with a roast. The walkers will provide you with a bag. Great senior pastor, eh? What a guy. Again, if you don't need the roast, you don't need the potatoes, you don't have to take them, but we don't want to have any excuse for you not to host an agape feast. So you go and you sign up at the info desk. You call the church and you tell them that you're going you're to hold one and you do or you do not need the roast and the potatoes. Do that today, please. And next Sunday, stay behind after the service for name tag Sunday. Pastor Mike said that, I don't know why he said this. He said, me and Pastor Frank, we have trouble with your names. I have no trouble with names. I know all of your names. I could, one by one, go by. Pastor Mike has problem with your names. I, I don't know. I guess he just felt like he had to throw me in so he didn't look, wouldn't look so bad. I don't know. But stay after the service because we're going to have lunch together. We're going to have an agape feast together. To love on one another. To have community. This is what we're doing here, folks. You know, when Jesus met with his disciples in the upper room, it was to have an agape feast, a love feast. And it was during this agape feast that Jesus warned them that he was about to be betrayed and killed. But don't worry, he was going to rise again. He told his disciples that his bread was his body that was about to be battered and scarred, that the wine that they were drinking was his blood poured out for the forgiveness of their sins. The disciples had no clue what Jesus was talking about during that agape feast. But later, when Jesus did indeed rise from the dead and appeared to the disciples and to many other people, the importance of his word at that agape feast sunk in. God sent his one and only son to die so that they might, we might live eternally with him in heaven. And as a response, as a response, 
let the Apostle John's words come to you again. Little children, let us love one another. Because if this only is done, it is enough. Why do fish swim? It's because that's what fish do. Why do birds sing? That's what birds do, they sing. Why do we love? It's because that's what we do if we're Christians. To cease to love means we cease to be who God made us to be. Loving, compassionate beings to, to bestow what God has given us unto others. Would you receive this morning's benediction in closing? Would you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity and all that God's people said, amen. God bless you, you're, dis you're dismissed.